it's a quick read, at least. Fast paced in just over 200 pages, which unfortunately might be the best thing I can say for it. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Welcome everyone to another episode of Keep It Fictional, a book podcast for book lovers by book lovers from the Port Moody Public Library. I'm your host today, Emma, and I am joined by my book friends, Al, Virginia, Corrine, and Sadie. Now, I must admit that I got some grief from my book friends about this week's episode theme. With Valentine's Day approaching, I thought, what better time of year to read something with a little love, a little romance? And then I thought, screw that. While I don't mind a romantic subplot in my reading, and I especially don't mind a little queer romance, traditional romance books just aren't really my style. And I feel like I speak for the group when I say that most of us present today aren't really much of romance readers. I love romance and I'm here to defend us. (laughs) So instead of reading something about love, today we're reading books that may not have anything to do with love, but they do have the word love in the title. So I'm looking forward to seeing the unique interpretations of the theme that my book friends have brought to share with us today and to seeing all the different ways that love can transpire in different books, hopefully some in ways more diverse than strictly romance. So without further ado, we'll begin with Sadie today. What book do you have for us? All right. Well, I don't know if mine falls strictly under the romance umbrella, but it's probably closer to that umbrella than what some of the other books are going to be. Yes, Corrine? There's nothing wrong with that. Not at all. No, and there is nothing wrong with that. I I am not as much of a romance reader as you are, Corrine, I would have to say, but I, I do enjoy a solid dose of romance in my books. So to prepare for this episode, I spent some time looking at all of the books that I've already read on Goodreads and all of the books in my to-be-read category on Goodreads to find something that had that love word in the title. And to be honest, I I thought there would be more. I really did. But there were not a ton. It was kind of between this one and uh, the Matthew Perry biography, which now I'm thinking maybe I should have just done that one. But uh, but anyways, uh, the book that I did end up picking was one that I read when I was on mat leave. And I read the whole book while I was sitting on my couch for hours at a time while Evie contact napped on me, which was my life for many months at the first part of my mat leave. And this book had been on my radar for a little bit. And I've read a few other books by the author and I've always enjoyed them. And so I, I was excited to read this one. So this is Sarah Jo's With Love from London. And so this book tells the story of Valentina or Val. And the last time that Val saw or spoke to her mother, Eloise, was when she was 11 years old and her mother walked out of her life for good. Giving no explanation, Eloise leaves America, her husband, and her daughter, and moves back to London. Val has never fully gotten over the abandonment. Makes sense. And now, two decades later, When she learns that her mother has died, she's really not sure how she feels. Her emotions are thrown even more into turmoil when she learns that her mother actually left her everything, including a small bookshop called The Book Garden and the apartments above it in Primrose Hill, London. Now, Val is a librarian, 
And so books are her life already. She lives in Seattle and she has just gotten out of a failed marriage and is finally divorced from her cheating ex-husband. And so she decides that at the very least, she's going to go to London and see this shop and maybe she'll be able to sell it and use the money to give herself a fresh start. So she boards a plane. She arrives in London hoping for a quick escape, really hoping that she's not going to have to deal with any of the messy emotions that she knows are still attached to her mother's leaving so many years ago. When Val arrives in Primrose Hill, she slowly starts to learn that the quick escape she was hoping for may not be as possible as she thought. Val meets Millie. Millie is a retired lawyer and one of her mother's oldest and dearest friends. Millie stepped in to help Eloise run the bookshop when she became too sick to run it herself. And Millie, even after Eloise has passed, is unbelievably defensive of her or in defense of her. She does not really like the way that Val holds resentment towards Eloise because she says, you don't understand and you're never going to understand what happened. Val also meets Liza. And Liza is her mother's young, friendly, and very energetic tenant who decides immediately that she and Val are going to be the best of friends. Now, these people loved her mother very dearly and already seemed to know so much about Val. They share how her mother spoke about her constantly with so much love. And Val finds herself once again on an emotional roller coaster. If her mother loved her so much, then why did she leave? Why did she walk out of her life and never contact Val again? And why, if she decided to never contact Val again, did she leave her the bookshop and invite Val into a life that she was never really allowed to be a part of before? Val is confused. She's angry. She's resentful. And she's honestly a little bit curious about the woman who was her mother. This woman who, while she does have some truly wonderful memories of, they are so far in the past that Val isn't sure what to think anymore. This woman who has left her everything and told her nothing. So Val makes the choice to stay. She moves into her mother's old flat above the bookshop and starts helping the still rather reluctant and standoffish Millie in the shop, hoping that maybe by living the life her mother lived, she can learn a little bit more about Eloise and maybe, finally, understand why she left all those years ago. So our story is moved along by two main storylines. The first is the story of the bookshop. Soon after deciding not to sell the book garden, Val learns that she may not actually have a choice. The shop is in major debt and it won't be able to stay open much longer without a serious upheaval and a boost in customers. That's okay, because Val not only is a librarian, she's also an up-and-coming bookstagrammer. And so she is determined to use her knowledge and her skills to bring the bookshop into the 21st century and boost their sales enough to stay open. Now, to do this, she needs to push through Millie's defensiveness as well as engage the Primrose Hill community to rally around her, a near stranger, to save the bookshop they all claim to love. Now, this storyline might be one that kind of takes a backseat to the main one, but it definitely is still there. But the second kind of main driving force of the narrative is the story of Eloise. And the story of Eloise, we see both from the present day 
uh, and that is 2013, and from the past in 1968. Val stumbles upon a clue tucked between the pages of one of her favorite childhood books that she finds in Eloise's apartment. And through this clue, Val is taken on a scavenger hunt around the neighborhood. The hunt had been set up by her mother before she died and was inspired by Val's love of scavenger hunts when she was a kid. Through the clues and locations that Val has taken, she's able to slowly start piecing together her mother's life and maybe gaining more of an understanding of the woman who she barely knew. Now, back in 1968, we follow Eloise herself, who, along with Millie, is living in London as a young woman. Eloise works at Harrods as a sales assistant, but has dreams of one day opening a little bookshop of her own. We follow Eloise as she finds and loses love, meets Valentina's father, and moves to California with him. Slowly over the course of the book, we learn more about Eloise, more about her hopes, her desires, her sadnesses, her disappointments. We learn about the choices that she had to make and what eventually leads her to leave Val and never look back. This is a book about love. It's a book about loss, grief, resentment, and ultimately forgiveness. Now, as I said, I've read a few Sarah Joe books before and I've always really liked them, but I do have to say I found this one a little bit harder to get into the premise of it. The scavenger hunt aspect seems a little bit odd. I feel like Val could have learned things about her mother without being kind of sent on this elaborate hunt throughout the city. But uh, you know what? I like a good scavenger hunt. I do. I do. So I I tried to commit to it, but it did make it so I wasn't fully invested in the story the whole time. However, the idea of inheriting a bookshop in London is one that I've definitely dreamt of. I'm sure others here have also dreamt of that. And so that definitely kind of worked to pull me in and to keep me interested and keep me reading. It does also have a really fun kind of cast of characters, all sort of like the kooky bookstore customers and salespeople that Val kind of has to break under their their shells and learn learn to love and get them to love her as well. But it's not a book with a lot of high stakes or a lot of excitement, I would say. But it does definitely kind of keep the story moving and the focus of it is on that connection and that relationship between Eloise and Val and both of them kind of trying to figure out what's going on and trying to kind of maintain that connection. So yeah, so I'd say that if if you are looking for something that's a bit more lighthearted, something about books, if, you, if you're somebody who loves to read about books and bookstores and the power that books have, then I would say this is definitely a book for you. If you've read Sarah Jo in the past and you really do um, like her books, then I would say it's it's kind of a similar style in a similar format to what she has done in the past. So yeah, so that is With Love from London by Sarah Jo. No, it's so funny because I've read some of her books before. And as you were describing, I'm like, have, have I read this one? Have I have I read this one? Or is it just kind of, and not, and this is not a critique, the same plot as all of her other ones, except with an emotional closure scavenger hunt. But it's very like Kate Morton light. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I read most of the Sergio ones I've read was kind of when I was in like my Kate Morton, Susanna Kearsley, like that kind of phase of reading, which is always person from the present is trying to figure out the connection that they have to the person in the past. And you see the story that two different kinds. And, I, and I've always really liked those kinds of books where you're seeing the story from two different time periods. And so that definitely kind of had that. It is very reminiscent of Kate Morton and Susanna Kearsley. But yeah, I just, I think it, it, Missed the mark on a few things in a way that some of her other books um, and some of the Kate Moore and stuff 
doesn't as much, but. Awesome. Thank you for that, Sadie. I also like those stories that are kind of like a multi-generational perspective. So it sounds interesting. Don't know if the scavenger hunt's my thing, but (laughs) it definitely sounds fun. I think we're going to do a pretty dramatic shift and jump over to Al and hear about Al's book, which from what I've heard is very, very different from what Sadie read. Yeah, it is definitely not like that. So yeah, we were supposed to pick a book with love in the title today. And I found a book with love in the title. I wanted to try and find something that wasn't a romance novel, not because I don't like romance novels, but because I wanted a challenge. And because I've already read my romance book for the month, I'm in a queer romance book club online, and we try and read a queer romance every month. So I've read my romance for the month. So what I found was Kill for Love by Laura Picklesheimer, billed as a female-led American psycho. One reviewer described it as American Psycho meets Legally Blonde. From that description, I'm sure you can tell there are going to be a lot of trigger warnings for this book. So I'm just going to say off the top, trigger warnings for fairly graphic murder, eating disorders, attempted and off-screen sexual assault, gore, and the murder of pets. Yeah, Uh, that, that bit specifically really got me and it's not even like like literally the book is just like she killed them because she could and i was like that's horrible we didn't need more knowledge that this character was a bad person but you know but yeah that's just what i can remember off the top of my head there's probably more trigger warnings for this book but yeah be prepared going in so with that out of the way what is kill for love we follow tiffany a fifth year sorority girl with dg one of the prettiest and most popular girls on campus. She's also one of the cleverest, though she doesn't actually advertise this. Her grades don't show it either, since she doesn't really go to class and is more likely to pay someone to take her exams than take them herself. Tiffany dreams of L.A. burning down every night in the heat, always safe from it herself, but watching with morbid fascination as the city succumbs to the flames. Bored with the routine of her life in sorority row, spending all her time on shopping, makeovers, and counting calories, everything changes one night at a frat party when she kills the frat boy she went with. She hides the knife she used, cleans herself off, and goes back to her sorority house with nobody any the wiser, and sates her other hungers with a decadent meal of fried chicken. While she and many of the partygoers are questioned, The killing is eventually blamed on the local homeless population. The first taste of killing changes Tiffany, turns her into something different, a predator. She starts craving murder, seeing every chiseled male body on frat row as a possible victim. She manages to keep her impulses in check for a time, but soon starts to make plans for another kill. When she's thwarted in her plan to kill another frat boy that she's taken to a party, she ends up killing a rival sorority sister's boyfriend instead, taking said sister's prized diamond ring as a trophy, and leaving her asleep next to the corpse to take the blame. A second murder on frat row brings more scrutiny, however, and while Tiffany is again able to escape being suspected, partly due to her employing her late father's greasy lawyer to keep the police off her tail, Tiffany is still hungry for more. She decides to expand her hunting grounds to more of L.A., geographically spreading out her murders. When another plan is thwarted due to her finding cameras in her proposed victim's room, Tiffany is distraught, and as she's trying to leave, she runs into Weston. Weston is rich, handsome, and immediately taken with Tiffany. When they kiss, 
Tiffany realizes it scratches much the same itch as her murders do. And she starts to believe that maybe her relationship with Weston will be able to keep her from killing more. But Weston isn't always around to quench her desires, and the murders begin to pile up again, some of them not even done by Tiffany. As her seemingly perfect relationship with Weston begins to show cracks, Tiffany gets even more desperate to fill the gaping void inside herself, and L.A. begins to descend to chaos around her as the haves grapple with the fact that they are not as removed from the dangers of the world around them as they thought. This was an interesting book. It's a quick read, at least. Fast-paced in just over 200 pages, which unfortunately might be the best thing I can say for it. I have to say, I almost feel like I should have gone for the romance because, while the satire in this is interesting, it didn't quite hit for me. Kill for Love feels like it wants to critique a lot. Diet culture, wellness culture, our cultural obsession with appearances and living Instagrammable lives, the privileged and the wealthy feeling removed from the rest of society and from the consequences of their actions. But it doesn't offer anything substantive to replace any of that, just shows it to be hollow, just like Tiffany. The satire feels very surface level here, and it doesn't feel like there's that much underneath. I'm a fan of horror, so gore doesn't bother me, but the scene where Tiffany kills her mom's pet Pomeranians just because they annoyed her really bothered me, maybe because I'm a pet parent to a rescue Pomeranian myself. Tiffany's internal ugliness and external plastic beauty are contrasted sharply, though at the end of the book there's a brutal deconstruction of that barrier between the two in a way that I felt kind of worked. If you're looking for a sharp satire of modern culture with a protagonist you will dislike while at the same time finding it really hard to look away from, then maybe Kill for Love is for you. Again, though, all the trigger warnings. All of them. Awesome. Thank you, Al. Um, I don't think I'll be reading that one, but uh, hopefully at least some of our readers are interested in it. Horror does sound kind of fascinating, and I love a good satire, but that one might be a little bit too much for this audience. I will share my book next. So as I mentioned before, I am not really much of a romance reader, but I do like a little bit of love in my books. I like love kind of as a concept to learn about. I like romantic tension between characters, but I do find books kind of in the traditional romance genre to be a little bit predictable and a little bit repetitive for my taste. I did read a lot more like young adult and new adult romance in my high school years, but as I've gotten older, I've gotten more interested in like character-driven stories and books about the human condition and the ways people think, which is kind of what drove me to pick my book for this week's episode. So just a little background, when I was in university, I got really into reading a lot of feminist theory, and one of my favorite scholars and theorists and cultural critics, who I find a lot more accessible and enjoyable than a lot of other theorists that I've read before, is the incomparable Bell Hooks. So for this week, I read her book, All About Love, New Visions, which is chapters on all the different types of love that you can encounter in your life. She talks about self-love. She talks about romantic love, obviously. She talks about spiritual love and communal love and learning how to love in childhood, all the different ways that people can learn to love in their lives. So this is All About Love by Bell Hooks. The book has been described as profound, provocative. Um, There are affirmations about, as I said, all the different types of love and loving that people experience throughout their lives. And each chapter explores a different form of love from at the beginning, they define love, they give love words, they give love names, transitions into learning about how to love throughout childhood, affirming self-love, spiritual love, romantic love, 
finding love in community. And one of my favorites was the chapter on living by a love ethic. So kind of incorporating like the ethic of love into everything that you do in your life. The book skewers our view of love as romance. Hooks' primary argument in the book is that love is more than just romance. It has so many different definitions to it. And this is the foremost understanding that people should come to in order to learn how to love well and how to love thoroughly in their lives. The book's description on the back cover summarizes it really well. It says, raising the cultural paradigm that the ideal love is infused with sex and desire, Hooks provides a new path to love that is sacred, redemptive, and healing for individuals and for a nation. The book is sort of a guidebook on learning how to love, but it's not heavy-handed in the self-help department like a lot of other books within the same genre tend to be. The author isn't just theorizing about love and how to love. She's also really speaking to her own experiences, both in her childhood relationships she had with her siblings and with her parents, and also the romantic relationships and the friendships she had throughout her adult life. The chapter on learning how to love in childhood was particularly interesting to me. Hooks writes about a lot of her own kind of lack of love she experienced, especially from her parents, and a little bit of that emotional neglect. And she talks about how that neglect translates into the ways that she gives and receives love or does not give and receive love in her adult romantic relationships. And to me, this idea was really fascinating. I have a background a little bit in education. And when I learned about education and child development in school, we talk about templates, which is the way that young children learn how to communicate. So the way that templates work is children learn how to communicate kind of based on how adults communicate with them. If a child is shown love in the home, is spoken to respectfully and kindly by the adults in their life, then that's how they learn how to communicate with others. And the opposite is also true. If a child is only spoken to with anger and aggression, then that in turn is how they communicate with others. And Hooks kind of incorporates this into her analysis of children learning about love. When children are raised in a very loving and caring environment where adults show them that love, then that's the same kind of attitude, the same kind of communication style that they carry into their adult life, which I found really cool, kind of connecting different ideas about education and child development to the ways that people learn how to love. Some other themes in the book that she discusses are how gender, how masculinity and femininity affect the way that people learn to love within a patriarchy. And Hooks is also really critical of how greed and consumerism and patriarchal values prevent people from living by what she calls a love ethic, a way of living where people are cooperative and they show care for one another, where people embrace communalism as opposed to narcissism and selfishness. Overall, the book speaks on how being really mindful in relationships, both romantic relationships and otherwise, and how showing care for one another and embracing positive change and growth can really improve people's individual lives and also just our well-being as a whole society. So some of the things I liked about the book, I love how it talks about all these different types of love. It's not just a book about romantic love. It's about self-love. It's about familial love and spiritual love and finding love within a community. It's also about how to accept love into your life as well as give give it to others, which I think is something that's really like monumentally important in this society where we're people are just kind of overrun by narcissism and selfishness and and consumerism. I think it's really important to remind ourselves of how to be mindful and present and show that care to others as well as be able to receive it. It examines love in the context of patriarchy, how men and women learn to love differently, and how people of different genders are socialized to love in different ways and in really complex ways. 
And despite the fact that the book does incorporate quite a bit of feminist theory and is written by a very famous and prolific feminist theorist, it's not filled with difficult to understand jargon. One of my favorite things about Bell Hooks as an author overall is that her writing in general, she really makes theory accessible. These ideas that everyone should be able to understand, but are often portrayed in really complex and like hard to penetrate language. She makes them accessible for everyone, which is something that I've always really valued about her work. If you've never read feminist theory or bell hooks before, because it seems too academic or too dense for you, but you're interested in learning more about it, I think this book is a really, really excellent place to start because of how relatable and easy it is to understand. Some appeals it may have to other readers is I'd say this is a great book to check out if you're interested in learning more about how to incorporate love in your life, or if you're not interested in the preachy self-help books, but you want to learn a little bit more about love, I think this is a really relatable and approachable way to go about it. If you want to read something that's just kind of uplifting and engaging and life-affirming, if you were inspired by our episode last week about Black History Month and you want to read more Black authors, I'd highly recommend you read anything Bell Hooks has written. And finally, if you want to read or check out more feminist theory, but a lot of it is really intimidating to you, then I can't recommend her highly enough. Bell Hooks is a really, really excellent entry point into making theory accessible for everyone. So that is her collection of chapters and essays all about love, new visions by Bell Hooks. Before we hear about our next book, I think it's time for the existential question. So this week's question is, if you only had to read from one section of the library for the rest of your life, what section would it be? All right. So again, we did some like wibbling and wobbling about the exact like semantics of what we're saying. Like what section are we talking about? And is it by like our qualifications of how we divide things by genre? Is it by letter? Apparently Emma said we can't just do all of nonfiction. Um, we have to be a little. No, all of adult fiction. You could do nonfiction. <laughs> oh, sorry. All of adult fiction. I mean, and that's fine. These these questions are here to challenge us. And I'm sure my other fellow book friends are going to cheat on some level. But I'm going to fully commit. And just because like, I feel very passionate about this in this episode is I am going to the romance section. I am just going to read romance because I feel like in many ways, the kind of like genre of romance is the most kind of like subversive, clever, radical, revolutionary, diverse section and I know, Virginia, shake your head all you want, but that's because you don't, it doesn't make you feel the way it makes me feel. I feel like there are, there's, there's a little bit of everything that you want. There's like mysteries. There's going to be like science fiction fantasy. There's going to be humor. There's going to be family sagas. There's a little bit of everything that can fall under that romance umbrella. So I feel like if for whatever reason I can, I'm, I'm trapped in a section of the library forever. If this is like my purgatory, um, th that I'm not allowed to like read widely, then I will gladly accept my prison sentence and hang out in the romance genre for the rest of my eternal days. This one was not off limits. So I'm just going to say all of YA. You know, when I picked the question, I knew you were going to say that. But similar to romance, if you pick all of YA, you get all of the genres that are mixed into it. You get the mystery, you get the romance, you get the sci-fi fantasy, you get the more realistic fiction. So I'm just, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure no one is surprised by that answer, but... Uh... <laughs> 
But yes, that's that is my choice. When we talked about the question before the episode started, uh, Virginia accused me of obviously I'm going to pick manga and I've got one for you, Virginia. I'm not going to pick manga because if I was trapped in the manga section for the rest of my life, I would read it all within like the first couple of months and then I would have nothing to read because I read manga so fast. I blast through it. There will always be more. It's not like there's no more new. Like you're not trapped in a snapshot of this library. I read manga so fast. But there are so many out there. And the series never ends. Just read One Piece. You'll be good forever. I, okay. Personal thing about Emma. I refuse to read One Piece. I'll never do it. I have my own personal vendetta against it. That's a whole topic for another podcast episode. But what I would choose for this question is I would choose sci-fi. Because manga, I would feel kind of trapped. I feel like I'd blast through all the content that I have available to me so fast and I would get bored of it. But with science fiction, it would take me a lot longer to read each individual book. I agree. I think the same thing applies to sci-fi as it does to romance. I think you can find all different types of sci-fi, different versions of sci-fi. And sci-fi kind of appeals to me in more of a broader sense. While with manga, like I like specific manga. But with sci-fi, like I could read almost any type of sci-fi. I like like soft sci-fi. I like satirical sci-fi. I like sci-fi with a little sapphic romance in it. So that's what I would choose. I, I can't. I have so many questions. Go for it, Corinne. Manga is a format, not a genre. It's like YA. It's the same thing. You can read all kinds within manga. So I don't... Anyway. The word vendetta. We can do a Pirates episode and it'll force me to read One Piece finally. I'm just really excited for the One Piece episode that we're going to be having in like a month or two. I'll read volume one. (laughs) I claim 42. (laughs) 42 is my volume. Don't take it. All right. I think I'm going to be the least surprising person except for maybe Sadie. I'm going to say also the science fiction section. I mean, here at this library, we have a science fiction fantasy section. So if I can pick that, I'm sold. I love speculative fiction in general. If we had a sci-fi fantasy horror section that was all of that put together in one, I would pick that. But since we've got a sci-fi fantasy section, that would be where I would spend my days. I love speculative fiction. And like Emma said, like Kareen said, there's kind of a little bit of everything in there. You got a little bit of romance. You got a little bit of mystery. You got urban fantasy. So it's like a little more contemporary. You've got your high fantasy that's a bit or your historical fantasy. You've got a little bit of everything. And with science fiction, it's all over the map. If I have to pick one between science fiction and fantasy, I will cry. But I would probably eventually come down on the side of science fiction, even though it means I would not be able to read my beloved Lord of the Rings ever again. Yeah, because I think there's just so much more like there's there's so much interesting science fiction coming out these days that I think it would be a really cool section to live in if I had to pick one and if I was trapped there forever in eternal purgatory. I feel like there's a library somewhere in the world where Lord of the Rings has been like miss filed into the fantasy section. So we'll find you that library and you can stay there. Do you mean the sci-fi section? That's what I meant. Yeah. 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 Okay. I will live in that library. Well, see, if Sadie could pick all of YA, that doesn't make sense that you can't say, I cannot pick all of adult fiction, Emma. Emma. <laughs> we corrected ourselves. You can pick all of adult fic, Virginia. Only because I like grumble about it like I always do but okay but if you have to like force me to and again I don't know if any library does I'm sure some library does it I will 
select myself and force myself and narrow it down to maybe books in translation. I think that's what I would do. If there's a library who does a books in translation section, that's what I'd be. Because then again, like everybody keeps saying, and I think that's what it is, is that like each genre is not what you think it is. I think that's what like what I mean. we're all trying to say is that just because it is this label, that doesn't mean that that's all that is. And I think that's really important because there are absolutely ones that are like that, but then there's also a lot that are different. So yeah, but I will I will just narrow it down to books in translation just to make Emma happy. That did make me happy, Virginia. This is how you this is why we call it the existential question. There's no simple answer to it. So I appreciate you all for bearing with me through that. Next, let's hear from Kareen. What romance book or book with love in the title do you have for us today? Ironically enough, after all of this, it's not a romance book. And that's because of my patented way of selecting my book for this podcast, which is a panic on a Thursday night. But I just panic on a Wednesday night, which didn't help me because I ended up reading this last night anyways, is that I went to the catalog, searched by title Love for something that was in the library, and it's sorted through publication. So I ended up with this book. Life and Other Love Songs by Anissa Gray, which is not a romance, which is a real shame because I might have enjoyed it more. Um, And maybe I should have, this is on me, done a little bit more digging about what this book was about before taking it home, curling into my little bed on a Thursday night at late o'clock with my little cup of night tea beside me and be like, okay, let's do this. And then I read the blurb and I was like, you've made a horrible mistake. Um, But it's too late because I'm already in my bed. And so I have to read this. Weirdly enough, this book has a lot of similarities to Sadie's, which I found quite funny. But this is not a super funny book. As with Al, there are some content warnings for child abuse, homophobia, and sexual assault, but not written about in great detail, but just as a heads up. So one day in October, around kind of like late afternoon, Osro Armstead, which is a name that I read about 15 million times, but never actually said out loud until now. Osro. Osro. Okay. Osro Armstead goes for lunch with his brother Tommy in their little cafe that they usually meet up with. It's his birthday. It's his 37th birthday, which is the same age that his father died at. And Osro is thankful that he made it this long. Because it's his birthday, he knows that his wife, Deborah, has a party waiting for him at home. And his young daughter, Trinity, will be there waiting at their home in the Detroit suburbs where they are the only Black family surrounded by white families. After lunch, he has more meetings, so he's left his jacket and his briefcase at the office. They have their usual lunch and talk a little bit about the past. Osro is thinking about his father, thinking about his upbringing. And at the end of a a little bit of a tense lunch, the brothers part, they pay. Osro stands up, walks out of the diner, and is never seen again. No body is found. No letters or proof of life arrive to his family. He simply vanished into thin air. But that's impossible. That's not something that happens. But for his wife, Deborah, and his daughter, Trinity, that is their new reality. This book bounces between the past and the present, the before and the after of Osro's disappearance. 
We get the story from his point of view, from his wife, Deborah's point of view, and from their daughter. All of these stories mixing together. We learn more about Deborah, his wife, who, when she was young, was going to be a star. It's the height of Motown, and she is a singer with her two other band members, and they are going to make it big time. They have a new manager, Lloyd, who is pushing them to get a record deal, and she feels like it could happen. At a rent-raising party, which is a rad idea that I think we should bring back, she meets the quiet, shy Osro, who has newly arrived from Alabama in the South with his brother Tommy and his mother. Osro is different from the other boys that she knows. He's quiet, a little reserved, and careful. And his witchy cousin, Willie May, who has a vision of Deborah and Osro together, calls him fragile. But Deborah is drawn towards him. But as she navigates the danger of being a Black woman in the music industry and then motherhood and marriage with Osro, at least she has him by her side until it all comes apart. We learn about his daughter, Trinity, who is the only Black girl at an all-white school. In the present, she is a journalist, constantly seeing the specter or ghost of her father in grocery stores, in community centers, on the bus. She's always searching for something, which leads her into a life of investigating true crime and chasing after relationships that are never going to work. This story bounces between the 1970s and the 1990s. It's a family story about secrets. It is a story of domestic fiction. It's a story of characters. It asks, how do you grieve? How do you grieve properly? The book begins with Osro's funeral without a body. As Trinity said, it is the strangest funeral she has ever attended. This book is written by Anissa Gray, whose debut, The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls, is perhaps the raddest title that has ever been written, was very, very well received. And in fact, this is her second book that was blurred by Jacqueline Woodson, who we have talked about. She is a senior editor at CNN, so kind of like a journalist by trade, and it shows. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Again, this is my mistake. I don't like family sagas. I am not interested in them. It is not something that I find really compelling. And so while this book was a very fast read, yeah, I think I knocked this out in like an hour and a half, which was delightful, a real treat, and goes down really, really smooth. Um, and it is compelling enough, you know, you want to know what happened in the disappearance, you want to know what happened to Osro, you want to kind of know why. There's enough in kind of like that character development that that will definitely, it's a compelling read. If you're looking for something kind of like light that is mostly about about people without tying them to kind of anything bigger, I think this will really work. It is definitely written at a clip. You can tell she's a journalist because she is getting you from point A to point B as efficiently as possible. No detours. So <laughs> it sounds really mean, but I, I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it, but I think that I didn't particularly connect to it because it's not a genre that I enjoy. 
the, the writing is very proficient. It's just really tough because last week I read a Toni Morrison book, which the writing kind of like knocked my socks off. And so after coming off of like this dizzying high of good writing, and then you kind of get something that's maybe not as... Oh boy. Um, you you can't help but start like compare it to the last thing that you read. But I think that people would really enjoy it because it is, it's kind of like a domestic fiction and that you're kind of really getting to know the characters. But as with some of the other reviews that I saw from other sources, like they didn't particularly connect to the character of Osro, which makes it really tough because he makes some choices and some of the other characters make some very kind choices that I personally would not be making. So yeah, it's, 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 I always, I, I, when we choose a topic like this, it's always tough because you, you, you grab a book and you're like, should I recommend this or should I not recommend this? I will say that this is not for me, but it is definitely for someone. That person is not me, but it's someone but it definitely has love in the title. So Life and Other Love Songs by Anissa Gray. I, I might actually check out The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls. So so I think that's a win. Yeah, I definitely agree that, that the other book is the raddest title I've ever heard. So maybe that's the one <laughs> that I'll check out. <laughs> Thank you for that, Corrine. We have one left. So Virginia, what do you have for us? It's definitely a romance that I know. Absolutely. So I have a very similar experience as Corinne. I think as a librarian on Keep It Fictional, we often have this same experience where we're reading a book for the podcast and we hear this voice in our head. I'm not sure whose voice my book friends have in their head, but in mine, it's definitely Ross Geller yelling in my head, telling me to pivot. And most of the time, I know better and I will heed his advice because, you know, I don't have any trouble dropping a book in the middle because, you know, life is too short. But I didn't this week because the book is by an author that I've always wanted to read. And I, like I said last week, I was going to deal with that this year, finally. So I persevered. I told Ross to be quiet. And then Thursday morning, a day before our recording at 5.30 a.m., I turned my e-reader off after 640 pages and came to the conclusion that I have already reached 400 pages ago that I can't talk about this book. I don't want to talk about this book. And I'm not diplomatic like Corrine who could talk about a book that they may not, it may not be for them in such a nice way. So yeah, I had to go find a different one. And unlike Corrine, again, I can pivot at midnight and still come in to talk about a book with like zero sleep. So I didn't want risks. I just decided to reread a book that I read because I know that I enjoyed it. I know I liked it, but you know, I need to read it because I don't remember anything. So yeah. So I'm happy to report that I have a book that I can wholeheartedly recommend for today. It is just as good as I remember it and maybe even better because I feel like uh, life has changed me in the last couple of years. I feel like I can appreciate a little bit more now, maybe. So this is Love and Other Thought Experiments and it is by Sophie Ward. This is her debut novel. You will never know it. And all of that intro is just to say, Emma, despite all my grumpy pants grumbling, I read like almost a thousand page just for you. So hope you appreciate it. Anyway, content warning first for this book, Death and Dying, Terminal Illness, Homophobia, and also give you a sensitive to things that happen to your eyes. Yeah, I know I am definitely, but I, I, I read through it because I love this book. Anyway, Eliza was woking up one night by her wife, Rachel. Rachel has sat up in their bed, and she's screaming and screaming. She must have a nightmare, Eliza thought, 
And so she tried to calm Rachel down and bring her back to reality. But Rachel kept saying, an ant, an ant has crawled into my eye. An ant has crawled into my eye. Eliza thought to herself, no, it doesn't work that way. That doesn't happen. And she tries to tell Rachel that. But of course, Rachel won't listen. Things have been a little bit tense these days. Rachel and Eliza have decided to have a baby. And uh, they both agree that Rachel probably wants it a little bit more than Eliza. But Eliza does, you know, welcome to have a child. And it's hard because once you've decided that, I think both of them are kind of starting to maybe worry a little bit. Like, am I good enough to be a parent? Can I handle this? And Rachel particularly is quite anxious about this. And so very often an innocent comment, something totally like normal, will be interpreted by her as a slight, as like somebody is like remarking on the fact that she's not fit enough to be a mother. And so Eliza just thought, okay, this is just another nightmare. She's stressed out. And so Eliza keeps trying to reassure Rachel that, no, you just had a really bad dream. But Rachel said to her, no, I felt the end going into my eye. And if you love me, you will trust me. Do you believe me? Do you believe me? What is Eliza supposed to say? to that. The story unfolds in 10 chapters, in 10 interconnected episodes and stories, each featuring a different perspective. We hear from Rachel and Eliza, of course. We hear from Rachel's mother, Elizabeth, what happened when she decided to move to Brazil with Rachel's father. We hear from a boy who remembers a near-death experience when he almost drowned. We hear from Arthur, Rachel's and Eliza's son, as a child and then as an adult. We hear from Greg, the husband of the sperm donor, and the parenthood that he may or may not have signed up for. And then some other perspectives that I'm going to let you discover for yourself because they are quite amazing. And each episode starts with, as the title suggested, a short paragraph of a thought experiment. And as the book described, a thought experiment is a device of the imagination to use to investigate the nature of things. So the beginning chapter that I just described, for example, was introduced by the thought experiment of Pascal's wager. And what that is, is that he decided that it is a better bet to believe in the existence of God because in that finite amount of life that we have on this earth, if we believe in God and maybe we, as a result, like be a better person, so to speak, whatever rules that you go by, then there is a possibility that there will be an infinite amount of happiness in our outer life. But if you don't bet on that, if you don't believe in it and you just do whatever you want, sure, you may enjoy a life of whatever, but then you might have the consequence of an infinite amount of suffering in the afterlife. So a thought experiment, so a little page to explain it. Of course, you know, you probably have like Wikipedia on the side to like kind of learn more. With that in mind, we are plunged into that story, that episode. And if you think about how Eliza should answer Rachel's question, do you believe me? Well, what should she say? Should she agree to the existence of this ant, even though she doesn't think that it's possible? And what happens if she say, no, I don't believe you, that still insists that this is not possible? And that's how Sophie Watt, the author, frames each of these individual episodes with a specific thought experiments in mind. And it 
provides a different way to think about the corresponding story and, and you look at it in a different light and it makes for a really thought-provoking read. And of course, like I said, the many rabbit holes that you will find yourself on Wikipedia as you want to learn more about these thought experiments. But I think why this book works so well is that Sophie Ward is not here to show off. She's not here to be like, oh, look at how clever I am. I'm just going to throw a bunch of like philosophical, metaphysical ideas at you and you're going to supposed to be impressed by all of them. No, she wrote a story. She wrote a great story and she did not forget that that is what she set out to do. She created characters that you want to invest emotionally in even if some of them you only meet briefly, you care for them. And she created a story of grief, of love that resonates. Her writing is also perfect. And again, no fancy flowery prose, but it hits the target every time. One of the most memorable lines for me was when uh, one of the characters, Greg, who was the uh, the husband of the sperm donor, he was heating up some stuff in the microwave and he started thinking, you know what? Step parenting was the art of reheating someone else's love. And I thought that was just the perfect, perfect line. Anyway, this book, yes, may be a little bit more experimental than others may like, but I think the story itself rounds the book so well that even if you don't feel like engaging with that philosophical side of things, I think you will still find a very moving story and that you can still enjoy it. But I love that it challenges us to think a little bit more deeply about human existence, about reality, about your place in this wide, wide world. And of course, there's also a little bit touch on like artificial intelligence and, you know, what can a computer know? Can a computer know love when it has all the words, it has all the language to describe it, but can a computer know love? And so I feel like it hits all the spots for me. Perfect book. I'm so glad I reread it. And thank you, Emma, I guess, for this. So um, again, this is Love and Other Thought Experiments by Sophie Ward. You're welcome, Virginia. <laughs> thank you so much for that book talk. That actually genuinely sounds like like a book that I would really, really love. I love a thought experiment. I love a book that kind of dissects human existence, the human condition. So no offense to the other books people shared today, but that one is going on my list like immediately. So those are all the books that we have for you guys today. Thank you for listening. I'm Emma. Here are my book friends, and we will see you next week for our next episode. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm -hmm.